Yeah, I think I would have preferred to see Section 7 and even Section 8 mimic Section 6, right? So standardize the federal government's playbook for detection of cybersecurity vulnerabilities and incidents on federal government networks. Like that's that's something they should be doing. They should standardize the approach. They should have a, a standard playbook. They should have you know standardized positions and roles and, and people doing these things. But to say we're going to improve the detection, it's like you're you're sort of at the limit of again money, technology, and 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 will, right? So they definitely everyone wants to improve. I think they would have maybe gotten more bang for the buck if they had focused on standardizing the approach. Well, hey, I'm Jeff Diverter, and welcome back to Cloud Talk, where we strive to help decode the ever-changing world of technology to help you apply it to your business so that hopefully you'll have one more tool in your arsenal to help improve your business and those around you. Now, in today's episode, we deal with a few different topics all rolled into one. First, there's cybersecurity, a topic, well, I really don't think that we can talk enough about. But more than just talk about cybersecurity in the abstract, we're talking about it in how the United States federal government is now approaching this through the lens of the presidential order, which Joe Biden signed earlier this year. Now, if you work for the federal government, you're a contractor to them, or a contractor to the contractor, well, this episode is for you. The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking a sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just going to tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Diverter. So now, as we dig into the executive order on cybersecurity, I've got a few experts to help us understand the implication of these 10 sections that make up the document. First, there's Rackspace's Global Director of Government Solutions, Brad Schulteis. Now, Brad and I are joined by Gary Alterson, who leads security services for Rackspace Technology and is no stranger to this program. Well, since it's Brad's first time on the program, I thought we might start by having him introduce himself and give us a little background on his career. Sure. So uh, going back a little in history, uh, I've actually worked for the Department of Defense uh, starting in uh, 2010. Um, so I worked there for about three and a half years. Uh, I led some of the uh, initial cloud computing initiatives uh, across the DoD uh, and the and the government as a whole. Um, so I've been in this space for a while. Um, I actually then went to AWS and launched some of their government cloud initiatives, and then ended up at Rackspace, thinking I was getting out of the government industry as a whole. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, Rackspace made an acquisition and we got back into the government space. Um, so I've taken over our uh, government product organization. Um, so I own the, the solutions and the capabilities and services we sell into the public sector around the world. Uh, today, we're focused on the U.S. government and the U.K. government. And we provide a, uh, a FedRAMP authorized platform as a service. Um, so uh, some of these things are 
uh, very relevant to the conversation today. I would think so. I'll be interested to see how much of this does or does not impact the things that Rackspace does. And we all know Gary, but Gary, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself again? We have some new listeners these days. Sure thing. Been in cybersecurity for 20 plus years, long, long back when I had a, a full head of hair. Um, grew up as a security architect, was a CISO in both banking and insurance, uh, led a security consulting team, uh, was acquired by Cisco, uh, ended up leading security services at Cisco for a while, and now I'm here at Rackspace, um, building and evolving our security portfolio. All right. Well, awesome. Glad you guys are here. Now, as uh, just to set a little context, as we get into picking this apart, I do want to make the statement that this is not an indictment on one party or another or one president or another, whether we say things that we love or whether we say things that we don't. These are technologists looking at an executive order that's squarely in our space. And uh, we'll talk about that. Now, we, uh, we spent a few minutes before we pushed the old record button, just kind of in general discussing uh, this executive order. And one of the observations that I had, and I'm curious you know, what you guys think about this, is as you look at this, and it's broken down into 10 different sections. On its surface, it really seems like an excellent pattern. Any organization looking to improve their cybersecurity stance, their footprint, this is not a bad pattern. Now you'd have to pull out some organiz- some some agency names and such, and put in your departments and your things. But but you know, Brad, I think we'll start over with you. you know, overall, as a, as a pattern for improving uh, cybersecurity, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll say on the face that it, it definitely sounds great. It's uh, improving the nation's cybersecurity. So finally, you know, comprehensive cybersecurity reform. <laughs> Who could argue for with all that? Government. Yes, we all want that. Um, it's 18 pages, pretty beefy, a lot of content. Um, one thing you, you kind of immediately recognize, there's a lot of explicit actions and milestones. And this is pretty funny if you're in the government space, because in the government, we have these things called POEMs. These are plans of actions and milestones. Uh, this reads very much like an OM. It's a POEM without the plan. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, kind of very descriptive actions and milestones that should be taken across government, but it's lacking the how, right? It's not really saying how we're going to accomplish these massive feats. Uh, It's directing various leaders to go and figure that out. So we're, we're asking leadership to come up with a comprehensive cybersecurity plan, because like you mentioned, this is a, a full scale plan. This is cybersecurity 101. Um, if you don't know anything about cybersecurity, read this document. You'll learn what is cybersecurity, all things, you know, uh, assessment, deployment, detection, recovery, remediation. Uh, we get into threat sharing. Oh, and don't forget about supply chain. Right. This order says do all those things better <laughs> and figure it out. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing about executive orders is is it's there's it's all this directive. Thou shalt go and do these things. You put that, but oftentimes, always, there there's an expense to doing that stuff. There's no real, I mean, there's a call to a timeline, but how are they supposed to pay for some of this stuff? Yeah, I think the interesting thing here is usually when I think, hey, the government is about to set off doing something in cybersecurity, I expect something that looks like NIST 853, really detailed, you know, this is what you need to do. Here's how to do it. Um, 
the the neat thing is the Biden government did consult with industry, right? Um, so the administration did consult with the industry. And so, as you mentioned, the pattern is all right. The things to do are awesome. And, and um any organization should take a look at this and go, this is, this is a great blueprint uh, for, for how to go improve my cybersecurity. Um, you know, the devil is then in the details, right? And if you're an administrator, a system administrator within the federal government, you're used to being handed the, you know, these are the exact things I need to do. And I have a, a time frame when I need to do it in. Uh, and I have potentially a budget to do it with. Um, and, and, you know, here you've got a high level, this is what I should do, but without the explicit, you know, down to the implementation level things that I need to do, uh, uh and, uh, I've got to do it without a budget. So, you know, great direction, you know, the, the, the trick is, the, the trick is going to be in the details. So, you know, what, a, well, if, Let's not worry as much about the implementation. Let's talk about what's in, in it a little bit at first. So let's move through a few of these sections and talk about them. And it's always interesting also when you look at the wording that they use. You know, Who could argue with some of the wording? Who <laughs> right. wouldn't want to, in Section 2, remove barriers to sharing threat information? That's the title for Section 2. Who wouldn't want to remove barriers so that we can share information? Um, thoughts from Section 2? Well, even just going back to Section 1 before we jump into the... <laughs> into policy? Right. Uh, yeah, so... I love the, the statement here. It is the policy of my administration that the prevention, detection, assessment, and remediation of cyber incidents is a top priority and essential to national economic security. It's like a tautology there, right? Yeah. Yes. Everyone, everyone acknowledges I that. care. I care about, about, about cybersecurity. Yeah. So we're going to do those things. And so, again, the question is, how are we doing those things? So you think, okay, we're going to get into that now remove the barriers to sharing threat information. Uh, so we talk about, there are various uh, things that exist that prevent certain types of sharing. And those have existed for years. And a lot of those exist for very specific and important reasons. Um, I don't know that this executive order is really going to change some of those laws that are on the books um, because it probably can't in a lot of cases. Um, it also doesn't really directly address industry supporting the government and how uh, the uh, kind of the ramifications of sharing some of this stuff. So the industry has a lot of mandatory reporting requirements already, uh, but it's not consistent. So I think what would be great is if we work towards a consistent mandatory reporting practice and then provide some protections to industry, because once you start sharing some of this information, it really shows maybe a mistake that was made. And as, as we all know in cyber, there, there's a million mistakes that can be made and our adversaries only need to find one of those mistakes. Um, so we need some, some love measure of protection for industry to acknowledge that these things happen. We're doing, a, you know, the best we can in most cases with limited resources, uh, you know, labor shortages, and uh, we're, we're taking the actions and, we found this thing and we're sharing it in good conscience to prevent it in the future, but please don't, please, please don't, please don't shoot the messenger because exactly. Happened. Yeah. I, I, when you look at the process, any organization goes through, especially a commercial organization goes through before they disclose a breach or a threat, 
publicly uh, or to a regulator today. Um, there's there's quite a bit of hand wringing around. Is this something I have to expose? Um, is this something I have to disclose? Um, oh wait, can I make an argument on why I didn't have to disclose this? Um, Hey, let me go meet with my attorneys and let's figure out, do I really have to disclose this, right? Because there are, uh, um, you know, potential ramifications from a cost perspective, from a, a customer, uh, 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 you know, customer safety and security perspective, a um, reputational perspective, and from a, a legal perspective, right? So all those have to be taken into account in determining how we're going to share information, right? Um, especially when you start to share active threats, right? Um, this is going on right now. If I think about it, if I am AWS or, or Microsoft or Google, and there's an active threat going on in my cloud that I'm responding to, um, that's not the time when I wanna freak out all my customers, right? Uh, more than likely, I wanna be like, hey, I respond to this. It's fixed. Um, we're ready to go again. Uh, you're protected. Well, and when you mix in a little bit of, of, of governmental politics as well, or not governmental politics, global politics, because what we have seen over the past many years is a lot of these threats are coming from nation state. So is that, you know, does the government want us as industry to go and say, country XYZ, we have proof, is actively doing this thing? Um, because that has very real political ramifications of policy of, of that government. Yeah. yeah, and that's where we ran into conflict already. There's very real protections and, and limitations in place for that specifically. Like we as a cloud service provider that has FedRAMP authorization, a DOD impact level four authorization, uh, there's times where we can't share information with certain agencies because we're mandated to provide that information only to one specific agency because it has those sort of implications. Yeah. So again, going back to the fact that that this is a good blueprint, but one, it lacks the, how do you actually do it? And two, what do you do when you hit a conflict of, of right, literal right. laws that exist? And, and remember also, uh, as your uh, as an organization is trying to describe those threats and provide attribution to the origin of those threats, attribution is hard. Um, you know, many, many of those nation state actors uh, uh, put false flags into their code. Um, we've, we've seen this in, in uh, a, a lot of different uh, malicious code from, from these, these actors, right? So if I'm in North Korea, I might put some Russian language comments into my code uh, to try to throw folks off. So, you know, the moment uh, uh, an organization that doesn't have a service or a service provider that doesn't have the sophistication of a Microsoft or a Google in terms of how they e e evaluate and do attribution, um, you could have somebody disclosing, hey, I'm under attack from Zimbabwe. Uh, uh, and, you know, that needs, there, there needs to be some validation and verification in the process as well um, because of that. So uh, I feel like we could we could do whole episodes on each of these sections, but I want to I want to <laughs> give a quick cursory through all of these. But let's because what we're ultimately finding is problem upon problem. Because you know you guys are listeners, understand that IT is hard, and when you do it at the scale of a federal government, it's incredibly complex. And when you do it at the scale of a federal government that impacts has impact in on a global stage, you got to do it 
you kind of got to do it right. But if we go to the next section, so section um, section three, modernizing federal government cybersecurity. Who wouldn't want to do that? That's a great idea. But let's, you know, we're now sitting here squarely in August, and this came out in May. And in here, it makes a statement that within 60 days of the executive order, the head of each agency, by the way, Brad, how many, how, generally speaking, would you say, how many, how many employees, uh, direct employees are in each agency? Oh, it definitely varies. I mean, you got really large agencies, really small agencies, but you have oh. hundreds of agencies. Okay. So the scale so you're is talking hundreds of thousands of employees. Right. Now these guys had a plan coming into the year. They, they had a job, they have a full plate, they have a roadmap, but now update existing uh, agency plans to prioritize resources for the adoption of cloud technology on guidance, implement a zero trust, arch- uh, implement zero trust architecture. Let me just stop for a second. They had 60 <laughs> days. Every agency had 60 days to implement zero trust architecture. Uh, over under on it actually being done well it's definitely not done um i think we've maybe have established definitions yeah. in 60 days okay. that the government agrees on so we saw three different uh organizations come out with uh some some reference architectures and and documentation around this right so DISA, nsa and nist have put together some pretty comprehensive documentation that's good um zero trust as a concept is very good uh the realities come when you're implementing this and per this executive order, it's essentially everywhere. Anything technology now must be zero trust. Well, that sounds good, right? But in reality, that's not, it, it doesn't work. You start breaking things that have worked for decades. Um, you see, you've seen there's a lot of uh, issues with, the, with printing lately. There's a lot of exploits coming around from printing. It's because printing has been a, a trust thing forever, right? You hit print, it goes to the printer. Um, the printer is generally in your office. There's not a whole lot of lot of concern there, um, especially if you're in an air gap network or you're you know behind closed doors. Um, if we start enforcing some of these zero trust principles all the way down to the printer, you run into issues where it just becomes unusable. If you know 10 people are printing at once, they go up, you get in a line, you have to scan your badge to receive your documents. Uh, the agencies are going to start writing exceptions and not not doing that anymore. Right, uh, and and that's just one example. I think you're going to run into this in other areas where you, you, there's some places that zero trust probably is not going to apply because there are situations where there are areas where you can trust because of physical isolation. Zero trust as a concept and in architecture, yes, absolutely, it is. It, a great thing to ask agencies to go and implement uh, and go and figure out. It's a great thing for any organization to figure out. We've we've talked about it in the podcast. What almost every single podcast I think comes so. up. Yep. Um, but it, it's not a, a sixty day implementation uh, no. for most organizations, including you know smaller organizations. So I can't imagine. Um, something like the, you know, the Department of Veteran Affairs um, or the VA uh, impl- implementing zero trust uh, across their hospital system in 60 days. Right. Uh, I, I think good to have a plan. Um, and absolutely, if I were a veteran, I would want to see that implemented uh, across the VA. Um but in a reasonable in a reasonable time frame. 
Well, and again, this uh, we're not here to throw rocks at, the, at, at, at an organization trying to do something to, to, to do the right thing. And this is the right yeah, thing. Absolutely. We've established that. We've established also that the timelines are unrealistic and there is no plan to do anything other than thou shalt and here's your timeline. Yeah, there's I no think budget. There's no, no plan. Just do it. Yeah, I think there's bigger implications as well for contractors uh, of, of the government, right? And, and the implication for the American economy as a whole, given how many contractors there are for the government, um, if all those contractors do go out in the next year or so, let's call it, give it a little bit more time and implement zero trust architecture, data encryption, uh, 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 you know, multi-factor authentication, um, you're, you're starting to make a, a, a bigger impact on the level of uh, cybersecurity resilience in the economy as a whole. Yeah, I mean, we already know that 80 plus percent of the IT budgets go to O&M of legacy technologies. So now we're going to say, what, like, where do we draw the line? Do we have to go and put MFA on some of these legacy technologies that we just aren't ready to get rid of? Do they get exceptions or are we forced to move those legacy technologies to newer technologies that can implement these zero trust architectures? Uh, any one of those options has a massive cost associated with it. And the contracts that are performing the work on, on those systems do not have the funding to do that additional work. So you're talking a massive uplift of every single IT contract across the board. I just don't see that happening. Well, certainly not in this timeline. And if, if you know, just by our example at Rackspace, as we help companies, let's just say, not even get on an often antiquated system, but let's say they've got a, a well-established SAP deployment and they're going to move it from cloud A to cloud B, from data center into a cloud, from their data center to our data center. That measures in the quarters of a year, if not multi-year projects. So these SAP uh, implementations are, are, in some cases, you know, years and years and years old. So it's, they're just they're they're ingrained into organizations. There there are connective tissue to different applications. Um, so many different applications resi- rely on that data, uh, and that's just one example. And that takes a half year, a year, a year and a half in some cases to to facilitate that kind of a move. And now we're just saying blanketly upgrade, go for it. Uh, all right, so let's let's move on. Uh, enhance the software supply chain security. So why why is that necessary? Let's start with that because yeah, it is. When, it is um, when you look at some of the recent recent nation state attacks. Um, you know, one that stands out is um, something like SolarWinds, right? Where the it was a supplier of software to government agencies. Um, that ultimately was breached, and within the software itself, code was placed um, that essentially uh, was automatically updated into these agency networks. Because um, you want to automatically update your software, that's actually that's a know, good thing. A good thing to do, um, and and that deployed the malicious code that the nation state actor was then able to use to gain access to um, a lot of both commercial networks and, and government networks. Um, and, and this concept of uh, um, being able to 
uh, not attack an entity direct, but I can attack a supplier of that entity um, and then gain access to that entity is, is what we call supply chain attacks. Um, or, and uh, um, so it, it is an important concept. It's certainly a complex uh, uh, concept, right? Because um, any organization that's a supplier to the government now needs to go and figure out um, where their, um, you know, CICD pipelines or uh, waterfall software development methodologies uh, need to improve. Um, it, it's not something that, that is overnight. Um, it's all good stuff. And me as a buyer of security uh, of software, right, uh, I would want my suppliers to take that seriously um, and the security of their code seriously. Um, and the security of their um, CICD pipelines seriously. So I think it's all, all good stuff, all appropriate. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly um, something that takes expertise to do. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yep. So that's everything. That's email. You, you've literally covered everything inside of your data center. I mean, even what you're pointing outside, your web servers, everything is covered in that case. So critical, yep. everything has become critical. Yep. I mean, I, I think that 
as a vendor, right, uh, uh, to to a gov- the government, um, vendors will need to figure out, as Brad said, software composition analysis. There are tools out there that help automate that. There are limitations in some of the in many of those tools, right? It's a um, it, 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 on the curve of maturity, those tools have, have a way to go, but it's certainly a, a fast moving space. Um, you know, the same thing for static analysis and in dynamic, uh, you know, software analysis, um, you know, there's code analysis tools out there. It's, it's a question of automation process and, um, you know, how, how you build your software in order to provide that. Um, but the scale at which, uh, this needs to happen, as you're pointing out, is is huge. Um, you know, good good results if we can make it happen, right? Again, for the cyber resiliency of the nation as a whole, right? And those vendors to the government that do make it happen, you know, probably have a leg up in commercial uh, in the commercial space as well, um, because there are commercial entities, especially larger ones, that are really concerned with supply chain uh, uh, threats. Um, so, you know, the, again, the overall impact I think is, is good. Um, but as Brad points out, the actual implementation within the government itself is, 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 you know, um, where, uh, the, the tricky part I think comes, you know, good impact overall for the nation's cyber resiliency, but, uh, the, the trick is how it gets implemented within the government itself. Well, and again, you know, the, the pattern is good. The outline is good. And we're, we're sitting here discussing where it's fallen short in the reality of implementation in the timeline set in the document. But as you think about this as your own organizations, you know, you, you want to consider the things that we're using the federal government as the example of. These are the things you need to think through as you go through modernizing your cybersecurity inside of your own organizations. In fact, if we move then down into section six, um, oh no, it's section five, establish a cyber safety review board. Awesome idea. Brad, what do we think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the the interesting thing about it, if you look at the the analogous to like the transportation safety board, right, um, and the uh, retrospective lessons learned from any. Uh, you know, accident in, in the transportation section, um, you know, plane crash, train crash, whatever. Um, you know, there's always lessons learned, take away that are fed back into industry. And that's, that's great. And, and establishing standards and reviewing threat activity and um, making that, that public, um, all, all really positive. Yeah, so when it's a really great point that that this is a place where the federal government really can play well and provide value to to the nation. You know, you think about technology, which is at the heart of everything that we do, both personally and professionally. Um, anything we can do to make that run better and have an overview board um, that can provide guidance then back out to uh, to industry 
is a good thing. And in fact, that kind of leads us into sections uh, into, into six. We're standardizing the federal government's playbook for responding to cybersecurity vulnerability and incidents. A playbook. We love a good playbook. Yeah, again, this is a this is something they definitely should be doing. There needs to be a more standardized approach to how these things are handled across government. All the government should get together and say, this is the approach. This is the playbook. This is the way to do it. Um, again, there's very little to, to, to pick at here. This, this is something that is definitely lacking and something they can improve meaningfully uh, without a whole lot of added expense and onus on uh, outside parties that they may not be able to, to uh, impact, right? So uh, definitely worthy cause, worthy objective, and a realistic outcome is high, highly likely. Well, and uh, again, it's it's nice to see when they when they kind of nail something, and it's in their wheelhouse to actually do. And uh, and as I was looking through the section, you know, it's assigning responsibility, it's assigning different folks to go and get after it, but the timelines can still be a little bit tight. Within forty five days, you know, the director of the NSA he's got jobs to do. He got ninety days. SecDef has got to go, you know, come back with some some data as well. So. You know, you start putting timelines of 45 days. I mean, that's directly impacting other work that they were actively working on. Yeah, I think if we say you don't have to uh, implement MFA on every single yeah. <laughs> system in your environment in the next 45 days, it'll free them up to do these tasks that they're, they're really able to perform. Right. And in the wheelhouse of what they do. Yep. Yep. Uh all right, so so moving on to seven, then we're moving a little bit faster because we do have some other larger observations to make, but improving direction of cybersecurity vulnerabilities and incidents in the federal government um, networks or detection, not direction, sorry, improving the detection of it. Another a, a worthy thing to do. I don't know if it requires a whole section, but worthy thing to do. Yeah, I think um, this, one, this one becomes a little bit more challenging, right? So- Obviously, we would love to be able to detect every, you know, incident of compromise. That everyone has that goal. Um, it's again the how of figuring this stuff out. So then you get into things like uh, anomaly detection, AI, and machine learning are definitely helping us here. Uh, but the, there's no comprehensive way to ensure this today. Right. It's it's like back to the the first section under policy. Do it better. I think it's. I mean, I think it's good practice, right? Um, you know, developing threat hunting, containment and remedi- remediation capabilities, um, deploying EDR, um, getting better transparency to your vulnerabilities, and, and the ability to detect cybersecurity incidents all, um, you know, best practices, uh, essentially well-known in the industry. Um, most organizations have a, a, a need and a desire to do this better. Uh, you talk to any organization, uh, even, a, you know, a well-funded global bank, they'll tell you they, they need to do this better. And they're probably doing better than most, right? You know, within certain sectors uh, of the government, um, particularly in defense, um, I'm betting they do this quite well, but they will also tell you they can do better. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think it's it's a well-worthy uh, uh, cause. Um, and, and again, as you look 
as I look at it from the outside in at the uh, contractors to the federal government, again, any improvement in the space across you know the the thousands and thousands of contractors for the government you know helps improve the overall resiliency uh, uh, for the nation as a whole. Yeah, I think I would have preferred to see Section 7 and even Section 8 mimic Section 6, right? So standardize the federal government's playbook for detection of cybersecurity vulnerabilities and incidents on federal government networks. Like that's that's something they should be doing. They should standardize the approach. They should have a, a standard playbook. They should have you know standardized positions and roles and, and people doing these things. But to say we're going to improve the detection, it's like you're you're sort of at the limit of again money, technology, and 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 will, right? So they they definitely everyone wants to improve. I think they would have maybe gotten more bang for the buck if they had focused on standardizing the approach. Yeah, that, that's true for eight. You know, make you know improve the federal government's investigative and remediation capabilities, make it more better. <laughs> well, as opposed to let's standardize the plan. And let's improve the plan over time as we learn. Yeah, I think you're you what you're hitting into is well intentioned, right? Um, and, and certainly the right thing to do. But in you know, you're also hitting the limits of an executive order, right? Which is there is no funding behind an executive order. You need to have Congress allocate funding. Exactly. Um, so you know, agencies themselves will uh, have to figure out how to self fund or, you know, what they're going to take from uh, that they can take from that's discretionary for them, right? Because some of their their funding is also, you know, mandated congressionally that they spend on certain things. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think it's a good start. I, I think it's well-intentioned. And, and again, I think the overall impact on industry as a whole, all the right things. Um but I would love to see this followed up with some funding uh, uh, to to be able to to for the agencies to actually be able to implement. Yeah, you know, as we we, we talk about this, and now we'll we'll, we'll uh, apply it more broadly out to industry at large. You know, we we've called out the things that we like. You know, it is admirable to have a directive for your organization to improve cybersecurity. It is admirable also to, you know, to want to do the things that, that are called out in these different sections. But one of the things we've learned is it's also important to be realistic about what you can do as an organization and what's in your wheelhouse and what's not. You know, and from a federal government perspective, what's in the wheelhouse? Where can they provide the most good? And where do they need to rely on industry, rely on contractors? Now, you, you've, it goes back to, Brad, what you've kind of kept saying is, hey, uh, Section 6, Section 7, Section 8 should be like Section 5, or I may be getting it wrong. Do what you do well and rely on others to help. I think that's really important. And we all talk about also as you've, you know, we, we, we lead people in our organizations and it's important to set right goals for those those folks. And there's the the... The, uh, the methodology of setting smart goals, specific, measurable, actionable, uh, and so forth. And, uh, and I, f- I feel like that's maybe a big piece that's, that's over, overall lacking here. I don't think, I don't think it's, you know, the R in smart is realistic. Um, I, don't, I think the timeline is not realistic, not remotely realistic, and there's no teeth to know who to go back to and ask, is this done yet? Yeah, I mean, some of these things were kicked off, you know, in the timeline or at the tail end of the timeline, and essentially they, they started the process. But they're on hold yeah. pending other agency feedback uh, and traditional bureaucracy stuff, 
which is to be expected. So I, I think asking for some of these things in these really short timelines uh, may have hindered the the reality, right? The realistic nature of this. It it, it just everyone probably said this isn't going to happen, right? Yeah, so, so, why, so why spend any calories on it at all? You hold a kickoff meeting, at least say you did something. Well, I think uh, I'm going to make a counter argument. Uh, if the if the time frame was three years, um, you know, would we be at the same place uh, by the back end of those three years, right? Which is that, um, you know, the government still moves slow. Uh, um, you know, there's still interagency comments that need to happen. You know, people would wait to till year two and a half uh, before they actually started to, to take it seriously. Uh, I think um, if you look at it from the standpoint of this is important, let's set a sense of urgency around it and establish a yeah. sense of urgency and recognize. And, and I, I mean, I wasn't in the room. I can't say what they were thinking when they, when they, when they wrote the order, but mm-hmm. you know, recognize that we need to create a sense of urgency and, um, Folks may fail on the deadlines, but at least you know we're we're, we're creating a sense of urgency and accountability um, by well, I think, having. I think I would deadlines. counter that just a, a tiny bit, and I think they've done some of the things well, like what you're saying, and, and that is the realistic aspect might be to have a plan by the date they created, as opposed to you shall implement across all federal agencies multi-factor authentication in 90 days. You could put 360 days in there, and it wouldn't have been a realistic date. But a plan in that timeline starts to sound more realistic. And I think the last thing I might say would be at the end of this, by the way, all follow-up actions and the expectation of managing this follows uh, falls on the CIO of the federal government. I don't know what organization or where, but where where's the reporting? How do you know what's happening and when and what the holdups are? I think if you're going to make a public proclamation, you're also making yourself um, um, responsible for public follow-up. Yeah, and I, I like what uh, Gary was saying, you know, that you got to put some sort of impetus on this. You got to make it, you want want people to, to take action immediately because we definitely know that, you know, how long does a project take? Well, it takes as long as the due date, right? <laughs> <laughs> so put, move the due dates up. But I think we got to have a healthy balance between the, the, the reality of how complex this is yeah. uh, and the speed with which we need to take action. Yeah. Yeah. And again, what do we take away from this for our own organizations? I think urgency is so important. Your, your, your last, you know, very realistic joke. It's how long does a project take? It's it's as long as the due date. So set realistic due dates, set dates with that have urgency, set follow-up. Use this as a pattern for your own organization's, um, you know, uh, cybersecurity update and plan. I think it's a, it's an amazing um, outline for us to follow because I think the, the the government really looked to industry well in this area and had some really smart people work on it. Maybe what we'll do is we'll come back in November. That puts us at the 180 day mark and we'll find all the things that were supposed to be done and where we're supposed to be and, and talk about some of those. What do you think, guys? Do a report card. Yeah. There you go. It'll, it'll, it'll all be done. <laughs> it'll all be done. It'll, maybe even the ones from 270 days. By the way, there's nothing in here that won't be done in 270 days. So if, the whole federal government is, can be fixed. If there is nothing but certainty, it is that the federal government moves quickly. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> 
All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. I really do feel like we just scratched the surface of it. It's it's big stuff. So we will definitely come back and, and unpack some more because you know, in our planning, we t- we covered some really interesting things that that we never really even got to today. So we'll we'll come back and do some more. Sound good? Sounds great. Yep. All right. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Gary. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. So it may have sounded like a lot of heavy rocks being thrown at that executive order, but in principle, it really is a good thing. And since we recorded this episode, the government has made some excellent progress on some of those timelines. Now, you can also consider this episode as a precursor to those that are coming up in October, which, as we all know, is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and we have a bevy of episodes all focused on cybersecurity. It's going to be awesome. Now, if you're listening to this podcast as a subscriber to the program, well, thanks so much for that. But in that case, then you're missing out on some great additional content over at the Rackspace Technology Solve website. Just head over to rackspace.com slash solve and click into the Cloud Talk podcast where you'll find some great additional information. Of course, it's all free. Thanks to our good friends and supporters of the program, Dell Technologies. So until next time, remember this, technology doesn't change companies, but it's the combination of people and their processes, and yes, a little technology sprinkled in there that defines and creates our business future. Until next time, I'm Jeff Deverter, your host here at Cloud Talk.